Well, Father, it is um, indeed the desire of our hearts that we would be able to live out what we've just sung and that we would be singing that which is true, that nothing in all the world compares with knowing you and uh, everything else is worthless compared to knowing you. Father, we're easily distracted, we're easily defeated, we're easily discouraged. And so take this time now where we reach for our Bibles and we open it to refresh us, to renew us, to help us regain perspective and and that our fairest Lord Jesus would indeed be worth more to us than silver and gold. Father, renew our strength today, clear our minds, give us the ability to go from here and to live for Jesus in a new way, to walk in obedience, to be bright lights in this dark world. Thank you for these good times where we gather and we sit quietly and wait upon you. May your Holy Spirit shepherd us now through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of years ago, one of the guys in church came up to me and he said, Hey, Pastor Van, how about you and Jonathan going to a Nats game with me? The Nats stadium had just opened. And uh, so we said yes. We jumped in the car with a couple of other guys. And we had just a wonderful evening. It was a beautiful summer evening at the ballpark. And uh, found out while we were there that um, what had happened was this guy was working for a company that was on site at the Nat Stadium, and he had a card around his neck that wherever he went, he could open any door with this card and ID badge. And he took us all over the park and showed us around, even took us down after about the fifth inning, and we sat in some empty seats behind home plate, got free ice cream. It was a great evening. And what that guy was doing was he was working for a company that though the stadium was completed, he was going around um, completing what they call a punch list, that there were odds and ends all over the, the stadium and around the property of little things that needed attention. And his job for a number of months was just to finish out little tasks, some scratched paint, uh, a broken part, things that had been put in incorrectly, correcting them. And uh, this morning, as we uh, open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, I want you to think about this message as a bit of a punch list. Um, Our sermon series on the Ten Commandments is all done, essentially. But we need to go back and we need to take uh, care of a couple things and pay attention to a few things. Um, Next Sunday, Lord willing, um, Pastor Jim Shupey will be in our pulpit. I hope you appreciate the fact that the Lord sent him our way. Um, It's great to see Pastor Mark Johnson and his wife Jerry from Independent Bible Church walk in. Do you know how close we came to losing Jim Shupey to Independent Bible Church over there? And we're so glad that we got him, I'll tell you. I can't resist the the chance to just gloat a little bit in front of uh, Mark and Jerry. We're so thankful. Um, Pastor Mark, pray for him, is finishing up uh, a summer of sabbatical, celebrating his 25th year there at at, at Independent and Mark and Jerry, as most of you know, Mark is the founding pastor in a lot of ways of Fellowship Bible Church, leading a Bible study that God used to launch this ministry about almost 23 years ago now. And uh, thank you, Pastor Mark, for your faithfulness over there these 25 years and for all that Independent Bible Church means to us. But I hope you appreciate the fact that God has brought Jim Shupey to us. He's going to open God's Word next week. I have an appointment at the beach that I have to keep. And... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I love you, but I don't love you that much. And um, 
And so we're going to be off for a week of vacation here at the end of summer. And uh, Pastor Jim is going to finish up with a couple other odds and ends pertaining to the Decalogue, this list of ten words that God gave us that we, if you're new to us, we've been studying the Ten Commandments um, pretty much all late spring and throughout the summer, addressing uh, what God has spoken to His people and how it applies to our lives. Um, Pastor Jim will be, be uh, Jim Shupi will be dealing uh, with bringing together law and grace and how that fits a little bit in our lives. That'll be part at least of what he addresses next week, I believe. So when I hit the fourth commandment, that's the Sabbath day commandment, I felt like we left a number of questions unanswered. And ever since then, I thought at the end of our series, we would come back and punch this out and see if we can do a little better job on take two. Let's take a minute and let's just read through the Ten Commandments. It's been a number of weeks since we've been here. Our schedule has been interrupted. And I hope that you have benefited from our Ten Commandments series. Let's just remind ourselves of this list of ten words that God has given uh, through to us through His people Israel. He spoke directly to Moses, saying, verse 2, Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You see, he's speaking directly to Israel. Out of the house of slavery, you shall, number one, have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. He wants to be an invisible God. Let your eyes fall down to verse 7. Commandment 3, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then number 8, where we're going to revisit today for our text, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day. Sabbath means to cease from work or to rest, to stop. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, even your animals, shut your tractor off, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And he's going to reflect back to Genesis now in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. Okay, so we've been talking about how our attention is turned vertical in the first half of this list. How to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and that he's detailed for us some instruction. He then looks more horizontally in relationship of loving our neighbor as ourselves, beginning with the intimate relationship in the home and family. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He's talking about taking them out of Egypt where they've been wandering then for 40 years because of their disobedience. Now he's going to take them into the promised land. And he tells the young people that if they honor their father and their mother, it will go well with them in the land. Crucial to God's blessing was their relationship intimately in the home and family. And you'll recall, and this is pertinent to our message today, that that command may be more than any other command. We know how specifically it's repeated in the New Testament. 
in Ephesians chapter 6. And it is, we were reminded by Paul there when he wrote the church at Ephesus that this was the command with a promise that it may go well with you. And he applies it to the church today. Even though it was given directly to Israel, it was then retaught in the, in the epistles to the churches as pertinent for Christian living even today. He then goes on with the familiar part of the of these commands. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And there it is, our list of ten, directly spoken by God to his people, Israel specifically, in application to his people, the church, and it's so relevant for today. I, I just repeatedly, and I repeated that to you throughout our series, isn't it amazing how relevant this list is for today and the instruction that God gave us in what's happening in our world around us? What I want to do to begin with is I want to remind you of, of some of the points that we looked at when we unfolded this fourth commandment, Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. It's an unusual commandment, largely because of all the list of ten, this is the one that we don't pay attention to. And I felt like we, though we gained an understanding of it, we left some questions unanswered. So I want to have two parts to our message today. We're going to review a little bit and get ourselves up to speed exactly what God is saying here. We'll click that off. And then I want to try to answer four questions that I hope will be helpful in applying our understanding of this Sabbath command. Um, why or why not for today? Let's remind ourselves that as we looked at this passage, we noticed right away that um, in understanding what God is saying, it, it is interesting just by observation also, though, to note that how much space God gave to the fourth command. In this list of ten, there's more verses given to the fourth command than any of the other commands. And yet it's the one command that we disregard for the church today. That's interesting. All these other little one-liners, we pay attention to them. The one that he goes into detail, it's like we let it go. How come? Let's understand this a little bit. Let me remind you that we looked at this. We notice right away, first of all, that, that we understand, in understanding what God is saying to us, that this is a spiritual word. This fourth commandment is a spiritual word. Notice right away in verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it, look at the next word, to keep it holy. It's to be a holy day. Let your eyes go to verse 11 where he wraps up this section. So from verse 8 to 11, it's all about the fourth command. Notice what he says in verse 11. As he closes out this fourth commandment, he says, therefore the Lord blessed. So the Lord's blessing is on this. This day of rest, this day of ceasing all labor, and he made it holy. So he starts out by saying, it's a holy day, and he reminds him as he concludes these, this section on the fourth commandment that it's a holy day. So our understanding of it, first and foremost, is that when we think about the Sabbath, we're, we're talking about something that is a, a spiritual day. It's to be spiritual. But almost overshadowing the spiritual reality of it. Number two, let me remind you, is that this is, to understand it, you have to understand it in its occupational context. It's an occupational word. Notice that it has everything to do with our work. It has to do with labor and stopping our work. Look at 
So the next thing he says is, verse 9, six days you shall labor. Okay, it's a holy day that I'm going to make. It's spiritual, but now it's occupational that he turns to. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Okay, you plan it out, think it through. You can do this six days, but the seventh day you have off. That's an interesting concept. I have to tell you that I really like that. That's not a bad deal. Every seventh day, the Lord gives you permission to essentially do nothing. Stop. You say, but when I think about the Sabbath, I think about the New Testament and, and how burdensome it was. You need to understand that in, the, in our New Testament, in the Gospels particularly, when Jesus was violating all of the Pharisaical rules about the Ten Commandments left and right, he was doing that because it was utter nonsense. The Pharisees had implemented all kinds of rules, largely because of the general way in which the command was given. Look what it says. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. And he goes on, and on it you shall not do any work. And that's all it says. You just shall not do any work. And so the Pharisees are sitting around, and remember that so often their hearts were impure, they were proud, they were arrogant, they were self-centered, they were not genuinely interested in what, what God had to say to them as much as what people thought about them before the Lord as spiritual leaders. And so their motives were twisted often. And so they took something that was to be a command from God that was to be a point of refreshment. Now stop and think about it. If you're in Israel of old, in, in the historical context, you've just come out of 430 years of slavery, all right, and God has led you out of the wilderness because of their disobedience. They've spent 40 years wandering around. They're now getting ready to enter a pagan land that God is going to give them as their own land. And God is now going to restructure the basic framework of their lives. And what I mean by that is that they have known nothing for 430 years other than, essentially, history tells us, a 10-day workday of slavery and abuse. You see, the, Egyptian, the Egyptians operated, we understand from historical research, on a 10-day work week. So they went for 10 days before they came up for air. God is restructuring and he's telling them, now I have a new way for you to do. I want you to work six days and then on the sixth day you just take it off and rest. It's like you get a vacation every seventh day. Everybody loves to go on vacation. Every seventh day you get a vacation. When the Pharisees saw this, that they were to cease from work, what happened was in their, Ill, their ill-regarded motives is that they had to ask themselves, okay, God said to cease all work. Now we have to answer the question, what is work? If I pick up my grandson and hold him in the air, oh, that's work. He's a heavy load. I can't pick him up. And so they brought all these burdens. How many steps can I walk that it's not work, that it's leisure, that it's restful walk? If I walk, how can I take the pitcher and go get water out of the well? Or do I need to get water ready on Saturday night so that I don't draw water from the well on Sunday? Because that would be work. You know, we often overthink the, the obvious, don't we? All God is saying here is, you're going to be hardworking. You're going to be busy all week long. I want you to stop your routine. And on the seventh day, I want you to just rest. It's going to be a holy day, but it's, it's occupationally a rest day as well. What happens if you own your own business? What happens if you work by the hour and you have an opportunity to work more hours? What do you do? 
You keep cranking, don't you? Particularly those of you who know what it is to own your own business. You know that the hardest task in owning your own business is to do what? To shut it off. And, and the, the tendency of our flesh is to do what? It's to seek for personal gain. It's to build. It's to get more. It's to work. Got to keep cranking. God, and God says, I, I release you from that. I release you from your own weaknesses. And not only that, it's a statement about how different God's people are from everybody around. Who it's a dog-eat-dog world. They're working. They're cranking. They're, they're um, just getting everything they can and canning everything they can and sitting on the lid and it's just cranking. And God says, don't be that way. Plan your work in six-day chunks. Live a reasonable life. Work hard on the seventh day. Shut it off. Sit down. Be quiet. Stop working. It was supposed to be a day of joy. It was to be a day of refreshment, a day of renewal, a day where you could wake up then the next day. would be the first day of the week would have been Sunday. Or you could wake up and feel like you were ready to go back to work. You've had a chance to think. You've had a chance to meditate. There's very minimal instruction about worship. It obviously became a day of worship, but it was first and foremost to be a day of rest. Notice as we go on that not only is it a spiritual day, not only is it in the context of an occupational rest, but it's a relational day. Notice what he says. It, it is the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So there is a worship element and it's relational. God says it is to be to, between man and God. There's to be this relationship that is to take place. He goes on to say then that it is to be intergenerational. It's a generational command. It's not just for the old people. It's not just for the business owners. It's for everyone. It's for you. It's for your son. It's for your daughter. It's even for all of your servants. You're just supposed to shut the whole place down. So it's occupational. It's spiritual, occupational, relational, generational. Notice that the pattern comes from the six-day creation model from Genesis. It is interesting to note that before this, though, there evidently was really no observation of a Sabbath day given Noah and, and uh, Abraham and them. They didn't evidently exercise a, a Sabbath observation. The first reference that we have to it is in Exodus 16 earlier. Remember when God gave manna and quail and he said to them, he wanted them to hold the, the seventh day and to take the seventh day off. And on that day is when they would accumulate more manna, more quail, and their food didn't spoil. How great was that? Any other day of the week, if they went and picked up manna, stored it in baskets, put it on the shelf so that they could maybe just take it easy the next day, it spoiled and would sprout out with worms. But on the evening of the sixth day, when God gave it to him in Exodus 16, when they were in the wilderness, you can't beat that deal. It's like the bread just falls from heaven, put it in a basket, put it on the shelf, take tomorrow off and eat out of the basket on the shelf. It's the only day it worked. Refresh, renew, relax, focus on me. Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. But I want to point out that it's, it's based on a personal model. And that is God himself in the book of Genesis. There's one other thing that's worthy of pointing out. And if you want to turn a few pages to Exodus chapter 31, I want you to notice that as God gives further instruction about their obedience to the Sabbath, he does put it on Israel that this is a contractual, covenantal concept, that they are to keep it forever. Now, my understanding of Scripture would be that, that under Mosaic law... 
Israel was to hold to the observance of the Sabbath as an indicator of their special relationship with God. When we get to the New Testament and we're in the New Covenant, I would, I would understand Scripture to give relief from that during the church age. I think there is a time coming when God is going to renew his relationship with Israel in such a way, and, and largely it's during a time uh, that we would understand and teach to be a thousand-year window, um, yet future, called the millennium, when Jesus himself will rule and Israel will be back front burner. Right now, Israel has been set aside, and this is the age what we call the church, or the age of grace. It's a time when the prophets of old, Paul said, they, and Peter said, they didn't see it coming. And we're in somewhat of a parenthesis, this age of grace, that Jesus came, he fulfills the law for us, he is our Sabbath rest, and we now have this, this relationship with God by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by any keeping of the law. But for Israel specifically, nationally, in Exodus 31, it does point out that it is part of a covenant relationship with them. And what I want to point out here is that God takes this so seriously that look at verse 15 of Exodus 31. God takes this so seriously that he says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. It's a ceasing, a ceasing, a cessation of work for rest holy to the Lord. So there's the spiritual element. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. That's pretty serious, don't you think? It's also why the Pharisees distorted it. Because they recognized they weren't to do any work, but we better define work so we know who we can kill and who not to kill. Because of the death penalty. And so the final thing I just wanted to remind you of from our original outline is that not only that we need to understand this fourth commandment also in the context of it being capital. Capital punishment. So it was it's spiritual, it's occupational, it's relational, generational, it's personal based on God's model, and it's capital. The idea is that you will die if you don't keep it. So now to our questions. That kind of reminds us of the importance of this. Now to our questions. Four questions about Sabbath versus Sunday. All right? And the first one is the simple one, and I did answer it, but I want to answer it in more detail. It is possible that some of you have friends or counterparts at work who are committed to a seventh-day faith, and you don't really know what to do with that. The first question is, so then, if it's so important, and there's so much space given to it in our list of ten, more than any other command, it's obviously very clearly stated, we know it's not a mistake that God included it, there's nothing that indicates that it's less important than any of the others that are listed, then question number one, why do we not keep the fourth commandment in our day, in our age? Why? What did you do yesterday? Went fishing, mowed the lawn, took it easy. That was the seventh day. Sunday morning, the first day, we're all about the first day. So of the Ten Commandments, why? And the most direct and pointed, easy part of the answer is because it's never retaught in the New Covenant. It's never retaught in the New Testament. All of the other words given by God in the Decalogue, all of these ten imperatives, do this, don't do that, Every one of them we see are retaught and they're part of the very fabric of what it means to live for Christ. 
They're, they're retaught by the apostles as they wrote the epistles. You, you, see, you see some of this coming out even in the Sermon on the Mount, and you see it repeatedly taught by Jesus. Some of these very principles that are retaught throughout our New Testament. You know what's remarkable? As serious as it is, and as covenantal as it is with Israel, that when we are in the New Covenant, the New Testament has almost nothing to say about the Sabbath. There's almost no clear instruction on the Sabbath. What is written has uh, different people approach it from different ways, and so they say, but what about this? And so I thought we would handle the what about this for a minute. So question number one, then why don't we keep the Sabbath if it seems so important in the Old Testament? Why, when we get to the New Testament church, do we just ignore it? Answer, because it was never instructed, never retaught, never given to the church in the New Testament ever. Like all of the others. But what about? But what about Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11? Will you turn there quickly? But what about Hebrews 4, 9 through 11? Take a look at this. Because here it specifically uses the word Sabbath and that it's given to believers. What does that mean? What is it all about? Now, I want to tell you that this is right in the middle of a passage that is in context with significant teaching here. And we're just jumping right into a couple different verses and it's a little bit hard to grasp. But notice, first of all, what I'm pointing out. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. When you're reading this, wouldn't you think, well, that's us. And there remains this Sabbath rest for us. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, that's all we're going to look at right there. But, I, and, and, but let me tell you that what this is all about is exactly not teaching that there is a Sabbath day to keep. In fact, he's releasing us from works in the passage to enter into a Sabbath rest in the context of a passage of Scripture where he's teaching that Jesus is superior to Mosaic Law, Jesus is superior to Moses, Jesus is superior to the rest that Joshua led them in when he led them into the land. But there is this rest that is remaining to enter into that is only found ultimately in Christ. I assure you, this is not teaching that there is a Sabbath day to be kept. It is teaching us that there is a Sabbath rest to enter into in Christ. And that Christ is our Sabbath rest. When you get to the New Testament, it's not about a day of rest. It's about a person who brings refreshment. It's about entering into a relationship with God through Christ, and He is our Sabbath. He is the one that takes us out of the grind and grist mill of working for our salvation. And oh, if I could just do this and I could just do that, then I could get to God and I could keep the law. You can't keep the law. And Jesus keeps it, keeps it for us, and you enter into a rest by grace through faith, coming to Christ, laying down the burden of your sin, receiving His free gift of salvation. And that's the rest that the author of Hebrews is writing about. You need to understand that the book of Hebrews is called Hebrews for a reason. It's written to Hebrew believers. And much like the book of Galatians... There was a problem with the Hebrews. The whole reason the book is written, the whole reason the book of Galatians is written. 
is because they kept wanting to go back to their works system. They kept wanting to return to the law. It just, they knew Christ. They believed Christ. They had entered into salvation by grace and the apostles had taught them and they're part of a church, but it just felt right to to go to the synagogue on Saturday and it's just hard to give up these sacrifices. And Paul, Paul got very upset about this. We're going to see that he clarifies some of these things. The book of Galatians, the issue was circumcision, for example, in Galatians chapter 5. And he says that they were going back and they just, well, you just can't really be right with God if you don't have the mark of the covenant in circumcision. And Paul says, well, you might as well just go all the way and keep all the law then. It's not about keeping the law. And so this verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, that there remains this Sabbath rest for the people of God, is an invitation for people ultimately to come to Christ, not to keep the Sabbath day. When you study the passage, you say, but Pastor Van, but what about, but what about Matthew chapter 5? Let's turn there quickly, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. And you could say, well, why didn't God just write it clearer? Why didn't He just say, hey, church, you don't have to worry about the Sabbath. It's all about Sunday. You know, He just never came out and gave clear directives about this. It's all about inference. It's all about the teaching of the, uh, in the epistles and the teaching of Christ. I think one of the reasons is, is that it's supposed to be obvious that we don't keep the law for our salvation and for our ultimate rest But in Matthew chapter 5, there is a verse that will be pointed out to you, uh, especially by someone of the seventh-day persuasion. They'll say, but look at this. But what about this? Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Look what it says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus talking, okay? And this is his Sermon on the Mount that we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, an extensive teaching of Christ that is recorded for us. I have not come to abolish them, the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There it is, Pastor Van. Can't you see that Jesus himself said he didn't come to remove the law, he came to fulfill the law, and that not one jot or tittle or dot of the law is going to be removed until it's all fulfilled. And you know what I would say to a person that's trying to argue that you have to keep the Sabbath command as a sign that you're in grace, as you've accepted Christ as your Savior, but now we keep the law to prove that I'm in grace. And I would say, how come they're only interested in in the fourth commandment and they're not interested in the entire book of Leviticus and all of the other instruction and law to, to fulfill all of the sacrificial system? It's interesting, isn't it? So if it's all still there, then they ought to have some goats and sheep and pigeon at their house that they're killing on a regular basis. And they ought to be doing some special feasts. And they ought to be doing a, a, a savory offering up to the Lord as a good, beautiful scent to the Lord. And they ought to be doing the scapegoat offering and the father putting his hand on the goat and passing the sin of, of the family onto the goat. How come you're not keeping all of the law? How come? Because of the same reason you don't have to keep the fourth. Because all of that is fulfilled in Christ. Christ absolutely did not come to abolish the law. In fact, we need the law. Why do we need the law? We need the law for the same reason that I need a four-foot level. When I'm building a wall and I get it all nailed and set up, looks good to me. What do you think there, Janie, baby? We're on our way. We got her. Then you put the level up on there, and what do you find out when you plummet? 
Why, it's an inch and a half off at the top. And this end over here is off from that end. We need measuring guides, don't you? We need precision instruments. And when you hold a crooked 2x4 up to a 4-foot level, you find out how crooked it really is. Well, it looks straight to me when I took it off the pile. No, it's got a big old belly and it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. It's not true. That's what the law does. The, the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time in Romans talking about this. He said, I didn't even know that I was a coveter until I saw the law. And then I realized, oh, I do that all the time. And that that doesn't hold up to God's standard. So what about this, where Jesus says in Matthew 5, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've I've come to keep the law. This is great news. I almost just now said, this is your lucky day. But you probably already know it. But it's just really good to think about it again. Let me remind you of what I want to say by reminding you of a familiar story in Luke chapter 18. You remember that rich young man? You don't have to turn there. Just listen. You remember that rich young guy who came skidding into Jesus on his knees in front of Jesus? And he said, Lord, how may I have eternal life? The greatest question you could ever ask Jesus, isn't it? If you get a minute with Jesus and you're on this earth, that's the question. How can I have eternal life? He's the authority. All right, that's a great question even for today. And the young guy comes skidding in there and Jesus said, well, you know what the law says. Speaking of this. Don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. The young man jumps up and he's happy. Because he's, oh, I've been keeping the law ever since I was a kid. This is great. I know I have eternal life because I have kept the law. I have never violated the law since I can remember. So his point is that if he dies and stands before a holy God, he can look at God and say with a big grin on his face, I kept the law. You have to let me into into your heaven. And that's exactly what God would do if you kept the law. If you could keep God's law and never violate it one time, God would gladly let you into heaven. Just like that young guy. So then Jesus said, what has everybody puzzled about that passage is, and it's confusing, Jesus then looks at him, because he was very wealthy, and he says, all right, there's one thing you haven't done. And can't you see the guy's wheels turn? And he's saying, oh man, I thought I knew everything there was about the law. I memorized it, I keep it. And Jesus says, there's one thing I'm missing. And then Jesus pokes him in the eye. And he says, go home, get all your stuff, sell it in a garage sale, and take the money and give it to the poor. Do you remember what the guy did? He got up and he turned and he walked away sad. Oh, man, I thought I had the answers here, and I'm not going to do that. What was Jesus doing? Do you have to go sell your stuff to get to heaven? Do you have to give money to the poor to get to heaven? No. But he had just told Jesus, I've kept the whole law, man. And so Jesus just puts his finger on the truth of his inner heart. And he said, okay, If you keep the law, then you do this. Encapsulated in two phrases that we've been emphasizing throughout this series. If you keep the law, then you can say you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus tells him to go sell his stuff and give it to his neighbor. Listen, if you truly loved your neighbor as yourself, you would enjoy selling all your stuff and giving it to him just as much as you would enjoy buying it for yourself, right? It would be equal. 
But the guy wouldn't do it. And therefore, Jesus proves to him that he had not kept the law, that he was selfish, and that he had dark sides to his heart, and that he thought of himself as more important than his neighbor. That's pride. That's sin. In fact, he proved to that young man what is proven to us over and over again in Scripture that is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, is that we cannot keep the law. You can't do it. It's part of the whole reason it's there. It's to show you that you can't make it on your own. You can't jump high enough to slam the basketball and get your way into the all-star team. And then God said, All right, since you're a sinner and you've broken the law and you've broken the law so much that your sin deserves death, but I love you, out of my love and kindness, a holy God says, I'm going to send someone down there to you and he's going to keep the law for you. So stay with me. This is what I was saying about your lucky day. So when you come to the cross, and we talk about this all the time, we talk about the substitutionary death of Christ, right? We talk about how I deserve to go to the cross, but God sent Jesus to go there for me so that I can go to the cross and lay down my sinfulness so that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for me to the point that his father turns his back on him. But he accomplished something there. That's why he said it is finished. The work was done so that when I come to the cross in brokenness over my sinfulness, and I don't think anyone in this room needs proof or help proving that you're a sinner. If you're married, we'll just ask your spouse. We know. And we have a sin problem. And we can't keep the law. So we come to the cross where Jesus took my sin. And we talk about this reversal where he takes my sin. But then when I come in faith believing that he's the Christ. And that he's God in the flesh. And that he bore my sin to the cross. Was buried and rose again. That by faith and no works involved. I receive that as true for me. And I lay down my sinfulness. What does he give me? I give him my sin. He gives me his righteousness, right? He gives me a robe of righteousness that I did not put together. It's his. What does that mean? What does it mean? He gives me his righteousness. That's his perfection. In the eyes of a holy God, Jesus alone is sinless and perfect. He has kept the law. He has fulfilled the law and he did it for me. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Jesus came to show us that he could keep the law and that we needed somebody to keep it for us. You got it? So going to church on Saturday, it's not going to help you. And now I have this total dysfunctional problem with preaching and getting done in 45 minutes. And I don't know what to do with the rest of this message. And I'm not preaching another message on the fourth commandment. So that's question number one. We have three more. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. One more. Um, I'll just click off the others because they're, they're not that big of a deal. Once you get this straight, you're okay. One more. What about this, Pastor Man? Okay, so... Let me just make sure you understand where we are. So we know this fourth commandment is really important. It was in the Old Testament. Get your head cut off for it. In the New Testament, it's basically silent. There's almost nothing there. So we ask the question, then why don't we keep it? Because it's not talked about in the New Testament. But what about Hebrews entering into arrest? Well, that's all about Jesus. What about Matthew? 
5, Jesus said, I kept the law. That's all about Jesus, keeping it for us, because we can't keep it ourselves. One more, what about? Well, what about Paul and his disciples, how they worshipped on the Sabbath? Because if you know your Bible a little bit, you know that nine times in the book of Acts, in the early church, they went to, there's recorded for us that they went to the synagogue, and only one time in the entire book of Acts does it talk about the first day of the week. Interesting, isn't it? Now, again, this is not prescriptive or instruct. It's instructive in that it's a model for us. So turn to Acts chapter 20, and I think we can finish it out right here from Acts chapter 20. You hold on and listen well, and I'll try to make sense of the final part of this message. Because I do indeed want it to be helpful more than anything else. If you're depending on somehow keeping the law this morning, I want you to know that you can't do it and that Jesus kept it for you and you need to just come in faith believing that it was done for you and be saved today. That's the greatest thing that you could do today. In Acts chapter 20, here's, here's the kind of things that we look at. Okay, so what about Hebrews? What about Matthew 5? What about Paul and the disciples worshiping? All right. Actually, I want to go to Acts chapter 17. Then we're going to turn to 20. I, I, I told you wrong. Acts chapter 17 first. Because I want to show you, people will point out that Paul still went to the synagogue. And I think that Paul went to the synagogue regularly, and he did it for a reason. And I think we can see the reason here pretty clearly. Verse seven, chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's proving to them that he's the Messiah. He goes to... You know why Paul and... You know why they went to the synagogue? I think they probably prayed there some. They didn't go to exercise sacrifices... Or they went to lead people to Christ. They were doing evangelism in the synagogue. Paul is going while they have their Old Testament. Paul was an Old Testament expert. Paul knew the scriptures inside and out. And he would go to the synagogue where they would open the scrolls and their king. And he would, and you know what I think he would do? He would point to their rituals and he would point to their sacrifices. That's Christ. That's Christ. Christ did all that for you. You don't have to do this anymore. It's all done once and for all. Christ did it. And so Paul, yes, went to the synagogue, and it doesn't talk about the first day very much in the New Testament, or in Acts, nine times compared to one. But you have this kind of inference that he wasn't going there to keep the sacrifices or to, to keep ritualistic worship going, to keep the law in any way. He was going to open the scriptures and share Christ and point them to Christ. Flip the page to Acts 20, and we, we really are almost done. Most of the time when I say that, it doesn't mean anything. But we're getting close. We're still only answering question number one. Why do we not keep the fourth commandment? But what about? Before we look at Acts chapter 20, you need to understand that... Um, and I, I, ah, man, Colossians chapter 2. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, because then we see this, then it'll help you. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Take a look. I wanted to add this to what Paul, people who will point out that say that Paul went to the synagogue, you need to understand, not only did Paul go to the synagogue to preach Christ 
and not to keep the law. But Paul went to the synagogue. This same Paul wrote this to the Colossian believers. 2.16 of Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or what's the next word? Or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come by the substance, and by th- but the substance belongs to Christ. He's clarifying that these things have all changed under the new covenant. All right? I hope that made some sense to you. Let me just click off the other two questions so that you know what they are, and um, you can get thick books and read about them. Question number one, why do we not keep the fourth commandment? Because it's not retaught in the New Covenant in the New Testament. Question number two, then, then is, is it safe to say, question number two, that Sunday is the new Sabbath? Are we supposed to like have this day where we sit still all day Sunday and not do anything? The Apostle Paul clearly said that you, in Romans chapter 14 and in Colossians chapter 2, that you are to have a freedom in your conscience about one day being more important than another day. So if you choose to make Sunday a day where you don't do anything, you have a right to do that, but you don't have a right to tell somebody else that they have to do it that way. Because you're not under the law there. Okay? So Sunday, the answer, short answer is no. Sunday is not the new Sabbath. So then the next question is, is it okay to work on Sunday then? Why don't I just start working? Now you've gone full circle and you violate the principle given at at creation as to the very reason why the Lord instituted a day of rest for his people, a seven-day cycle. Your life is better off when you rest one day a week. You should have one day a week where where you rest. And so in, in one manner, you have freedom to go work if you need to. But you ought not to work seven days. You can, and it's not necessarily a sin if you don't violate your conscience, but you shouldn't based upon other principles in Scripture. And question number four then is if Sunday is the Lord's Day or the first day of the week. Okay, why do we do the first day of the week and why is it called the Lord's Day? Um, John called it, was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. Scripture is limited in giving us information about this, but suffice it to say this, that the pattern, and that's where we were going to go in Acts 20, but just forget it. In Acts 20, you'll see a pattern there that they gathered on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, the apostles gave them instruction that when they gathered on the first day of the week to take an offering, the apostle John on Patmos, when he was in the Spirit, it was the first day of the week, it was the Lord's Day. What you need to remember is that when the resurrection of Christ occurred, everything changed, and we're now under the new covenant, and under the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We no longer have to keep the Sabbath. Christ fulfills the Sabbath. He's our Sabbath rest. That's why commandment number four is not a high-level concern for the church today. So then, to finish out question number four, um, if Sunday is the Lord's Day, what should it look like and what should it be like? Know this, that the, the clues in the New Testament are that the people gathered together. It's not your day to go be alone. You're not supposed to just go be on the golf course or the beach alone all day, every Sunday. One day a week, the model is, at least, the believers gathered together. You'll notice in Acts 20 at the beginning of there that they were going to break bread together. That is more than likely communion. They probably did communion every week. We don't do it here. The Bible doesn't say you have to do that. But the reason they did that was to celebrate the broken body of our Lord Jesus that was now resurrected from the dead. So they gathered together. They focused on Christ. 
They renewed themselves through Christian fellowship. And you'll notice there that Paul went extra long in his preaching. And it's evident in the way it's worded there that it was a regular routine to preach the word on the first day of the week. So it was a day to study the word and preach the word together as well. Your Sunday needs to be characterized as a focus on Christ, a gathering with believers, a remembrance of what God has done for you in Christ in bringing you out of Egypt. Egypt represents our old sinful days, doesn't it? And just like in Deuteronomy 5, he wanted them to remember that they had come out of Egypt. We've come from a sinful past and we're now in Christ. One day a week, even though seven days a week, New Testament believers are to be focused on Christ. One day a week, we gather together and do it together corporately. We study the word. We focus on Christ. We remind ourselves of our salvation in Christ. We refresh ourselves and renew ourselves. And I think it's only practical to follow the creation pattern to have this day where you rest. You come out of your normal routine. Stop working. Shut it off. So the application for us is, is uh, the Lord's day really the Lord's day? Or is it me time day? Is it NFL time day? I'm not saying it's wrong to watch a football game on Sunday. I'm just saying, is Christ really the center on the Lord's day? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we continually struggle with the priorities of our lives. Many of us are living marginless lives. We feel like we have such little time. So thank you for this reminder today, based upon the the Sabbath day principle that there is a Lord's Day in our week. There is a day to gather. There is a day to focus on your word. There is a day to be refreshed and renewed. And that when we violate that, we wear ourselves thin. Father, thank you for Christ who fulfilled the law for us. Thank you that when we were stuck and we couldn't keep the law, and we couldn't do anything to satisfy you, that Christ did it for us. Father, would you help us to to just revel in the reality of the joy of having one day a week particularly where we focus on our Lord Jesus. May it be the delight of our week to gather with our brothers and sisters. May it be the delight of our week to refresh ourselves with the spoken word of God. May it be the delight of our week to come together, to eat together, to, to remember Christ together, to encourage one another together. May it never be a burden to us. Help us, Lord, to take time to focus on Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.